Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Monday, October 26th. We're going to chat with EV expert Sam Abel-Samet about whether EV manufacturers owe something to early adopters of electronic vehicles because they play a major role in getting other people in them. And as the numbers continue to rise where COVID-19 is concerned in the province, Durham and Halton are waiting to find out if they will be moved into a modified stage two. We'll talk to the mayor of Milton about his arguments against it. And one of the factors that may come into play is the K-factor. If you're not sure what the K-factor is, we've asked epidemiologist Colin Furness to define it for us. It's a measure of what's called dispersion. And what that means is, let's say two possible extremes. Everyone who gets COVID gives it to one or two other people. And if that were the case, if everyone who got um, COVID gave it to one or two other people, then you'd actually have a diffuse spread through the population. And that would actually be quite worrisome. You'd really have to lock people down to stop that from happening. What we have with COVID is the opposite. Most people don't give it to anybody at all. That in some ways, COVID could be understood as being not that contagious. However, hmm. when, when conditions are right, that is someone's maximally contagious and they're in the same room with a bunch of other people without masks, then lots of people get sick. And so, and so the, the dispersion pattern for COVID looks like that. So that is really informative in terms of the interventions we should take and the measures we should take. It suggests that we don't need to lock everyone down. We just need to uh, close off opportunities for super spreading. Okay, so let me see if I've grasped this concept correctly. So the R factor, uh, we know, is how how much the disease uh, replicates. So the K factor is how predictable the R factor is. Is that right, or am I missing this? Almost. No, you're, you're close. So the, R, the, the reproduction rate says, on average, as a hypothetical average, how many additional cases will every new case cause? So how many people will you give it to? On average, it's two, maybe three. But, okay. but it, that's not true for everybody. Most people give it to zero, and, a lot, and some people give it to a very large number of people. So it just means it's not equitable. Okay. Um, well, that's interesting. And so why have we not been talking about the cave factor more? Because um, is it that it, it, it is hard to for people to predict? So then it's hard for people to, um, I guess, build proper protocol around? Well, it's, it's one of these things where it's taken us a long time to learn about COVID, and you need good contact tracing data to make sense of this. You need to be spending time problem-solving, right? Not just treating, but actually actually really tracking in backwards, like backwards from when someone got sick, how they got sick. That's time-consuming. This is not something that Ontario's leadership has thought was important. It's not something that's been funded. It's not something that the Premier has paid much attention to. Therefore, we stayed kind of blind. And that's unfortunate. But we know now from research elsewhere, um, people who, other governments who have been doing that kind of measurement, that this is really what we're seeing. And that's hugely important, as I say, in terms of planning interventions. So it says to me that we don't need to lock people down. We shouldn't need to do that. But we do need to be really careful about people gathering. Is reacting easier? Um, what do you mean? Well, because it's it, all this protocol has been basically a reaction, right? Instead of problem solving, um, just reacting to what's happening in a case no, by it's case. Not. <laughs> 
Reacting is, is the worst way to manage a pandemic. And you know, right. my, my, my concern is that we've been managing in Ontario, we've been managing this like a political problem. Wait for something really awful to happen and then respond to it and throw things at it and, and, and be, make it look like we're doing stuff. But the proactive piece, the trying to do prevention, trying to do measurement, trying to get smarter, trying to get out in front of COVID, that's not been happening at all. And the clip you played was all about politicians talking about how businesses should stay open. It reminds me of the movie Jaws, right, where the, where the one guy who knows what's going on wants to shut the beach, but the politicians want to keep it open. And it's, it's, some, it's, it's tragic to have a pandemic managed by politicians because what's going to happen in Halton is going to be really awful. And it's, it's one of these things where you have very few cases, very few cases, and then you have a tidal wave of cases. That's what that's COVID's behavior. And politicians, local politicians don't seem to want to hear that. Okay, I'm confused, Dr. Furness. Now, I don't know if it's one of those days where I woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. I'm finding it hard to grasp, you know, simplistic complex, uh, you know, uh, concepts. But there's nothing there's nothing really that simplistic when it comes to COVID-19, I don't think. As, no, you, as you've said, we're learning about it as we go, right? But um, originally, when you said we shouldn't go to lockdowns and lockdowns aren't going to work, I thought, okay, you've got to be on the side of um, the Halton and no, um, Durham no. politicians. So, but what are you trying to tell us then? Like, how do we handle this? I don't know. Lockdowns work. They're just, it's just trying to hit a fly with a hammer, I think. We don't need to lock people down to stay safe. Um, what we need to do is, is prevent gatherings prevent large gatherings from happening. That's, that's really what we need to do. A lockdown would work, but that's really severe. And it seems to me that we can do most of what we like doing. We can have most of a normal life, except for things like all getting together in a restaurant with no masks. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about, you know, you said large gatherings are problematic, but York Region Public Health, they've issued a, a public notice. It was after a, uh, a family of 12 people, they gathered together over a span of two weeks near Thanksgiving weekend, and they shared this single residence in Vaughan during that time. And some of the family members were symptomatic. And I believe now they've got the case resulted in 10 members contracting the coronavirus. Three of them were infants. The virus also spread from one individual to another household, and then four more people got it. And one family member went into their workplace with symptoms, and that led to two more uh, individuals being exposed to COVID-19. So when we talk about gatherings, small gatherings might be a problem. We've seen record numbers yesterday and over the uh, the weekend. We're into the thousands, as predicted in October with the second with the modeling. Sure. Uh, we're into the you know over a thousand cases in Ontario yesterday. How do we ensure that these small uh, gatherings don't cause a, a widespread outbreak? Well, in my mind, 12 is actually not so small. I think that's part of the problem. But I'll tell you, there's one very simple principle here. All super spreader events have one thing in common, whether they're really large or not really large or what the location is. They all have one thing in common. People are not wearing masks. So it's restaurants, it's weddings, it's spin classes. Every time we see a super spreader event, it's people not wearing masks. And so when we talk about gatherings, really, I probably should have, should have said a little bit further, you can't put people in the same room unless they live with each other. You can't put people in the same room at all without people wearing masks. And if we just, if we just stuck to that, we would be in control. So you think we'd be able to meet inside during the winter with loved ones with masks on, providing no one takes those masks off? 
Well, I still want gathering sizes to be smaller because that's safer. But yes, in principle, uh, I would say that that would be an effective strategy. The problem, though, is that you can't just say that's the rule. You can say at, at, at this wedding, no one's, you know, everyone's wearing a mask, but they don't. Um, mm-hmm. People take them off. People don't wear them properly. And that's why smaller gatherings are better, because you just can't be sure that the compliance is what you need it to be. How much of this is is a Canadian problem? And and I ask you that because I know that it's a global problem, but it seems that Canadians are really, uh, on the whole, extremely polite and don't want to offend. And I think when you put a mask on in front of a loved one, I wonder how much of that has to do with, uh, you know, you feel like it's going to offend them if you're inside their house with a mask on. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, the best way to do the best way to do effective public health is not through enforcement, right? It's not waving a stick at people, not fining people. It's establishing social norms, right? It's doing the kind of communication that says we need to act as a community to keep everyone safe, and to do that, we need to wear masks. And that 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 message has not been clear in Ontario at all. In fact, the province resisted a mask mandate altogether, and and so mm-hmm. the province has not been, I think, on top of that. We did it in Toronto. And that actually, I think, worked fairly well. Um, elsewhere in the world, depending on cultural sensitivities, masks either seem like a really good idea. Um, they're quite common in Asia, for example. That wasn't a big, uh, I think, a, a big thing for them to be able to do. Uh, in the United States, obviously, um, you know, wearing, wearing masks is, is being interpreted by many as an assault on individual liberty. And then, as you say, politeness, it's, it can be very awkward, especially when people have different standards, um, mm-hmm. different standards for how anxious they are and how compliant they are. So it it is complicated. Yeah, I appreciate your time, Dr. Furness. It's been very helpful. Thanks so much for making a sense of, of the K-factor for us and, you know, how we should be handling this problem. We're going to talk to uh, the mayor of Milton next to find out uh, why he signed his name to that, uh, that letter. Anything you'd like us to throw in there to the mayor that you're curious about? Well, I think you might ask him, what is it about every other jurisdiction that went from no cases to a ton of cases that makes him think he's different? Um, that's that's the, the, the pattern, right? You go from nothing to a lot of cases all at once. He doesn't seem to agree that that's going to happen. What's his expertise? Amazing. Thank you very much. I will pose that question to him. Thank you very much and have yourself a great day. Thanks. Bye-bye now. Cheers. That's Colin Furness. He's an epidemiologist. Milton Mayor Gordon Krantz joins us on the line. Gordon, good to have you on. Well, thank you very much, uh, Kelly, and thanks for uh, your interest in what's going on here in Milton and the uh, region of Halton. So obviously, the goal of the letter is to avoid stage two modifications that Peel and Toronto are um, in the middle of. Um, and you are calling on the province for a couple of clarifications. What are you asking for in that letter? Well, I think what we're asking for, certainly as far as I am, we are concerned is, uh, you know, do consideration taking into account you know, things are pretty good in Halton uh, here, and including in, in Milton with regards to the cases uh, of uh, COVID-19. And, and that's what we're asking for, just common sense to uh, prevail, probably more than anything else, uh, Kelly. Okay, what were the numbers over the weekend? Do you know? I don't have them in front of me, but I know that uh, they're certainly low. Uh, I'm well aware that it seems to me that it averaged around the last few days, around 30, I believe, or a little uh, below that. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but... I have the numbers here. for you. I just, as you said that, I just Googled the numbers. Saturday, uh, Halton logged in only 21 new infections. Yeah, and in my opinion, that's, uh, that's quite reasonable uh, compared to what's happening in, you know, some of the others that have been identified as uh, a little higher risk, certainly, than what Halton is. And I talk about, you know, the city of Toronto and Peel and 
in New York and uh, Ottawa, places that have already gone back to, uh, you know, a portion of uh, stage two. And we're, we're, trying okay. to avoid, we're trying to avoid that in Halton because, at least in our opinion, the, the four mayors and the regional chair in Halton were united on uh, the premier and the people at the province having a serious look as to why they'd want to put uh, Halton back into uh, a portion of uh, stage two. And you're you're arguing that you'd like a clear definition of the criteria used to determine when we uh, impose these restrictions. So it, that exactly, you know, one of the things that I think we're all on the same page that uh, one size does not fit all. I know, and I didn't have an issue with it when this first started some six or seven months or so ago, on the province being uh, put totally in lockdown. That had uh, an effect on a lot of communities. Was it necessary? And again, I use this to illustrate. Was it really necessary to do that, say, in northern Ontario? Probably not, in my opinion. Or maybe eastern Ontario as well? Probably not. So one size uh, does not fit all, and that includes, uh, you know, Halton here too. We just don't want to be blanketed with one size. Okay. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to. I apologize. Sure, it's just not, what I do. not a problem. Um, so I was talking with uh, Colin Furness, who is an epidemiologist at the University of Toronto. I told him I had you coming up on the show. We were sure. talking about the replication rate and how numbers do start out small in most places before they explode. And I said, is there anything you'd like to ask the mayor of Milton? And here's what he had to say. Well, I think you might ask him, what is it about every other jurisdiction that went from no cases to a ton of cases that makes him think he's different? Um, that's that's the, the, the pattern, right? You go from nothing to a lot of cases all at once. He doesn't seem to agree that that's going to happen. What's his expertise? Well, that's a very valid uh, question. As an example, you know, I've been following it pretty closely. And actually, there was a uh, doctor that emailed uh, the four mayors and that just in the opposite views that, uh, you know, that uh, doctors have different uh, views uh, on the pandemic as well. So, you know, uh, that's called democracy. One person has his thought or her thoughts and others have others. So, you know. Confirmation bias is what you're saying. Yeah, really. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, that old cliche of he who pays the uh, piper calls the uh, the tune. So, you know, in this particular case, uh, it's the average citizen out there that's saying, hey, Enough is enough. We understand the severity of the uh, the virus. And Kelly, I use an example here. I get uh, people that are very, very paranoid, and I mean very, very paranoid that uh, just want to close everything down, shut everything down. And then I get the other book in that says anything and everything goes. And now they're in the extreme. And I would suspect probably there's at least 90% of us is in, as I'd refer to it, the mushy middle that probably uses nothing more than a ton of common sense on saying life has got to go on, but we've got to keep it under control. Just don't shut it down because the economy's very, very critical too to our well-being. Of course. And I have to ask you this. I mean, how can you exercise common sense when we're dealing with something that, you know, we have no precedent for? Um, the last time, you know, the last thing that we can point to is that um, influenza pandemic back in 1918, and we know what happened in the second wave. And uh, we don't want history to repeat itself. So you're calling on the province with this letter uh, to define the criteria used to determine uh, what further restrictions or rollbacks are required because you're worried that without that uh, justification, 
that people start to ignore public health advice. That's a dangerous place to be. And also um, your concern for your businesses. Yeah, most definitely. And you know what? I'm starting to see a little bit of that now where people Mm -hmm. are starting to ignore uh, what uh, us legislators uh, are suggesting that we should follow. I'm starting to see a little bit of that uh, now, as a a matter of fact. Fatigue, I I believe, is starting to set in there. Now, one of the things, uh, you know, Kelly, getting back to that common sense, I've been an elected person for many, many years. I've never been able to find out how you legislate common sense. It just has to be used. And again, getting back to that uh, one size doesn't fit all. Okay. So you're hoping that the province will meet you in the middle, um, that they will um, put restrictions on risky business. Like what? Yeah, exactly. You know, if there's bad actors out there, regardless of where it is, whether it's in the physical fitness area, whether it's in restaurants or anything else, uh, go after those individuals that's causing some of the problems. There's many, many great, uh, you know, businesses in, in Halton and across the province there that's not adding to the issue. It's those bad actors that's got to be clamped down on, and I'm all for that. Okay, and I understand, I was, Supriya was saying uh, this morning, uh, she was talking with the mayor of Milton, and they were talking about some voluntary restrictions that Halton's taken on and some of the businesses. Can you maybe uh, illustrate some of the things businesses in Milton have done? Yeah, well, I really can't speak to, uh, you know, the individual businesses, what they have done, but I do know that they've taken precautions in many, many areas going back some time ago. But one of the things I can allude to, say, uh, a lot of our facilities that's owned and operated by the town of Milton, they're on to some degree a, a further lockdown now and, uh, you know, shut back down, you know, to to get into part of that phase two. We're already starting to do that when it become an issue back three or four weeks ago. So we're already in that mode. And it's my understanding that the three other municipalities in Halton is uh, doing the same thing. So we're doing our part at the local level with our facilities. All right. Um, thank you so much, Gordon. I appreciate your time today. Yeah. Good thank luck. Kelly. Have a good one. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Chris and I were talking about this earlier on uh, this morning before we even got to air. And it's a story about an owner of uh, Nissan Leaf, which in Nissan Leaf were, until the Tesla took over, the most popular EVs in the world. And uh, this guy is frustrated because three years ago he bought a used 2013 Nissan Leaf. And he's interested in sustainability. And so he loves this vehicle. He said, it's amazingly, nothing breaks down except for his batteries starting to fade. And when he originally was buying this uh, used Nissan Leaf, he bought it at a dealership. And they said, listen, you um, can replace the battery for about $5,000. And he thought, okay, well, that's not bad. He said, but now, instead of being able to drive 120 kilometers, on a full charge, he can get maybe 80 kilometers and he doesn't want to risk it because he sees that the battery power is waning. So he goes into the dealership and he uh, mentions something about this and they say, oh, well, uh, it's going to cost $15,000 for a new battery. And he's like, well, that's not good enough. That's not what I'm hearing. So he then, the dealership says, well, you can call Nissan Canada. So he calls Nissan Canada and Nissan Canada keeps telling him, no, go back to a dealership. So basically, he's being given the runaround. And it's to me, this is a big story about the uh, about our interest in adopting new sustainable uh, ways of, you know, living our lives in um, helping the environment and the downfall of some of these um, 
sustainable vehicles, in, including the fact that it's going to cost uh, $15,000 more than he paid for the vehicle to replace the battery. And what he's being told by uh, dealerships in this particular case is, why don't you just buy a new vehicle? It's about $42,000. He said, well, that doesn't seem like a very sustainable way to go. So here to talk about it, our guy, whenever we talk about uh, EVs or whenever we talk about um, automated vehicles, we reach out to Sam Abel-Samid, who's a principal analyst at Guidehouse Insights and our expert of electric and self-driving cars. Sam, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Morning, Kelly. Good to be back again. Okay, so one of the things that interests me the most about this story is that uh, this guy thinks that Nissan actually owes him something. He says, you know, I was one of the uh, people that, you know, myself and early adopters have actually uh, given to the industry by getting people interested in EVs. Is he right? Does Nissan owe them something? I, I would say that, you know, in general, as a as a customer, you know, a company owes at least the, you know, the, the ability to provide service parts for a vehicle. I mean, this vehicle is only seven years old, uh, which is significantly less than the average age of a vehicle. I think in the U in Canada, average age of the vehicle fleet is about, about between 10 and 11 years old. Here in the U.S., it's about 12 years old. You know, a seven-year-old vehicle, you should be able to get service parts for that, including the battery. Um, you know, and especially for first-generation EVs, uh, you know, those batteries uh, sometimes don't last as long. Uh, although in, in most cases, manufacturers have been finding the batteries have actually been holding up better than they originally anticipated. So, yeah, I would say Nissan definitely should be working with him closely to, to get him a replacement battery. It raises questions about sustainability, though. If, you know, dealerships are saying just, you know, get a new battery for $15,000 or buy a new car for $42,000, we can get you in a brand new uh, version of the Nissan Leaf. Um, how, what are the horror stories that you hear or some of the stories where sustainability actually is not, um, I guess, as advertised? Yeah, you know, batteries, there's a lot of um, interesting raw materials, shall we say, that go into batteries, uh, you know, things like cobalt and, and nickel that, you know, have some environmental issues around them. And so, you know, ideally, you, you want to keep those things operating as long as possible. You, you want to minimize the amount of those raw materials that you have to mine and process. So, you know, and, and just in general, you know, things like a, a vehicle, you know, those things should be designed to last a long time. So I think that I, I fully sympathize with this customer. You know, he I, I would I would certainly want to keep my vehicle running as long as possible. I I drive a 31 year old car. So, you know, I know I, I, I feel for him. Wow. Good for you. 31 years. Wow. I, I thought I was good at like 16 years, but uh, that's pretty impressive, my friend. So um, I understand there's a lawsuit right now. It's a class action lawsuit when it comes to uh, Nissan and the battery. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, there, there was there was a class action suit that was filed in California uh, a number of years ago with for, by owners of some of the early generation between 2010 and 2012 uh, Leafs uh, because they Nissan did have some issues with the batteries on those degrading prematurely and they they made some changes uh, from 2013 onwards. Uh, but, you know, there's still a challenge with the Nissan batteries because Nissan, unlike most manufacturers, is using air cooling for the batteries. Uh, and it's, it's crucial, you know, to, in order to make these batteries last a long time to manage the temperature of the batteries. If they get too hot, 
that's what causes uh, the degradation in the, the charge capacity. And hmm. so Nissan, for now at least, is still using air cooling. Next year when they launch their new um, Aria electric crossover, that's switching to a liquid-cooled battery. But that, that lawsuit you referenced, uh, that was settled a number of years ago, and Nissan did uh, settle with those owners and provided a battery replacement program uh, at a reasonable cost for some of those early ones. Um, mm-hmm. That obviously I don't think applies in Canada, uh, but you know, uh, I did reach out to Nissan this morning after Chris uh, shot me a note to ask about what's uh, what's going on here. And he said that uh, a Nissan rep told me that they do have inventory of those batteries uh, for, for the 2013 models uh, available in, uh, in Canada. And hmm. they have reached out to uh, this customer's dealer and are working actively working with them to try and resolve this and get him a replacement battery. Well, hopefully it's not fifteen thousand dollars because that seems extremely yeah, I, I hope steep. Not. Okay, so yeah. when it comes well, to marketing, e- the cost of, e- uh, I was just going to say the cost of batteries has come down dramatically in the last yeah. few years, uh, and so you know hopefully they can get it to him closer closer to that five thousand dollar price point that that was originally quoted when he bought the car. When it comes to marketing EVs, how important is it for people to see other people driving them? Because th- I would assume they need to be normalized before the masses buy into it. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, um, you know, it's a new technology. People are unfamiliar with, you know, what are the, the challenges? You know, what are the issues that they might have with an EV? And you know, what what's it take to charge them? You know, people are used to going to a gas station and you know just filling up the tank in five minutes and be on their way. And so, you know, both um, seeing other people driving EVs and having the chance to try them out themselves is really important. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, you know, making them normal, feel normal is crucial. And this is something that manufacturers are trying to do in the design, you know, trying to make them seem less weird, less unusual. Uh, in fact, uh, here in the U.S., uh, Electrify America, you, uh, the Canadian division is called Electrify Canada. It's a charging network owned by Volkswagen, actually has a, an advertising campaign, uh, you know, around this whole idea of it's normal now. That's, that's their tagline, you know, uh, <laughs> promoting EVs. Uh, right. you know, and as we get more fast charging, um, you know, things things like, you know, the, the time it takes to charge uh, are becoming hopefully becoming less of an issue. Right. And, you know, you, you said that the, the campaign is all about it's normal now, but the the way that we as, uh, you know, people uh, accept things or get on to new things largely is by word of mouth. What people that we know say about the products that we're maybe considering adopting in our lives. You think about the person that you knew that had an iPad well before you did and until they made it look normal, you're thinking, well, I don't know if I want to invest that kind of money. How am I going to use that? When am I going to use that? So there is a lot to be said for the, the early adopters and how much they promote an, in, an industry or you know, a product. Yeah, they, I mean, they've been crucial, you know, to, to most new kinds of technologies. Certainly, you know, Tesla has relied heavily on that word of mouth and uh, for promotion. Tesla doesn't do traditional advertising. They don't buy ads on TV and in magazines and newspapers. But, you know, the Tesla fan base has been very vocal about loving their cars. And that's, you know, the, the same thing is true to a lesser degree for most other companies that are selling EVs. You know, they, they rely heavily on that word of mouth uh, to promote. And, you know, we at Guidehouse, we do an annual consumer survey of attitudes towards EVs. And, you know, one of the, the biggest challenges, you know, one of the things we found is that most people have never, never driven one. And, you know, when we, uh, when we ask 
you know, among people that, you know, have driven one, would they buy one? And, you know, the, the difference in the, the uh, number of people that would consider or buy an EV uh, who haven't driven one versus those who have is huge. Uh, you know, so just getting people behind the wheel uh, and experiencing what it's like in an EV is a, an absolutely key component of getting people to buy them. Okay. Uh, I have to ask then before I let you go, Sam, you said you're in a 36 year old vehicle. What are you driving? Uh, I have a 1990 uh, Mazda Miata. That's that's my toy. Uh, but we also have a, a newer Honda Civic uh, that's that's in our family. So, but my okay. my Miata is my toy. Presumably, you've been behind an EV. Why don't you have one yet? Um, you know, I I work from home. I don't uh, I don't drive a lot, uh, or I, you know, I don't commute to a, an office, and so. I haven't had uh, a need to buy a new car very often. Um, mm-hmm. But the next time we do buy one, you know, we'll probably, you know, I'll keep the, I'll keep the Miata till, till I'm dead probably. But uh, when we replace the Civic, uh, it will probably get replaced with an EV. Interesting. I just wanted to ask because they, you know, for someone like you to not have an EV, uh, it's kind of shocking. I mean, we've talked about uh, if I should go that way or how far away automated vehicles are when I was shopping around for a vehicle and, you made mention of the fact that you didn't think the automation would happen as quickly, but uh, EVs definitely have my curiosity peaked. Oh yeah, I mean those those are definitely happening. There's a lot of new EVs coming to market. Uh, Ford is now starting to manufacture the new Mustang Mach E, and I was just talking to a friend yesterday. He he just got his email from Ford that uh, his Mach E is going to be built uh, on November 21st, and he should be getting it by Christmas. So you know a, hmm. a lot. I know a lot of a lot of people who are moving over to EVs now. Does the cost of replacing a battery have to be equivalent or, or less than paying for gas over a certain number of years to make it worth it for most uh, consumers to get into an EV or consider getting into one, do you think? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's something you have to factor into the, the total cost of ownership. Uh, and so, you know, if, a, if it costs you fifteen dollars or $20,000 to replace a battery, that's, you know, for that kind of money, you can buy, you know, a, most of a, a new car. Uh, for for the same money, so yeah, that cost definitely does have to come down, and it has come down on on newer EVs. Those costs are much much lower than than that. It's you know it's somewhere usually closer to the five to ten thousand dollar range, depending on the size of the battery. All right, well, Sam, you've given us a lot to talk about. I'm going to open the the lines to our listeners and and see what they have to say about this story and about electric car manufacturers if they need to take care of their early adopters if people have bought cars based on what other people have said. I really appreciate your time. Oh, happy to talk to you all anytime, uh, Kelly. Have a great day. Thanks. That's Sam Ebosamet. He is a principal analyst at Guidehouse Insights and our expert on electric and self-driving cars. But my question is, do, do electric car manufacturers actually need to take care of their early adopters? What do you think? 416-870-6400. I think we're going to Simon first. Simon? Yeah, so I, um, as, as much as I feel for the guy, like, yes, he bought, like, part of the risk when you're buying any used vehicle is, the 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 risk of something breaking or going it's it's not a new car it's not a warranty so as much as i feel for the guy he also can't take a quote that was given to him three four years ago and expect to get the same uh same um price now as i will i will say between five and and fifteen thousand is a big jump it also things have gone up uh especially right now with manufacturing we all know uh, with what's going on in the world, things aren't the way they normally are, and things are taking longer, and things things have, are costing companies more. 
So I, I, I have a hard time feeling bad for the guy thinking that he's owed something. He bought a used vehicle they, with the risk of the batteries not lasting as long as if they was a brand new electric vehicle. Right, but it's only they, six they years old. It, yes, it's only six years old, but batteries don't last. That's part of the risk when it comes to electric vehicles is the batteries are the thing that you're going to have to replace first. So the cost savings that you're getting every month on not having to go to the gas station that cost savings is eaten up by needing to replace a battery pack when they do go. So it's a, it's a used vehicle. It's not a new vehicle. Who knows what the previous owner, what their charging habits and what their driving habits were like. Mm-hmm. It's part of the risk. So yes, it sucks that it's, he's being quoted 15,000. That's, that's a, that's horrible. That's one, one of the main reasons why my wife and I don't have an electric vehicle, but ah. it also, he also can't, take a quote that was given to him when he bought the car and expect that to be the same today. All right. David and Georgetown, I'm going to move over to David. Dave, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. You've got a Tesla. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That last guy just said the cost of the battery replacement should be built in. I mean, Teslas are warranted for like eight years. Uh, Most of the degradation in a car battery apparently comes in the first 50,000 kilometers. My Tesla uh, has dropped about 2% in 76,000 kilometers, uh, but I've had software updates that have given me an extra 10% of range. So I'm actually up 8% from when I bought the car. Do you find that other people are looking at you when you're out in the car uh, and maybe you might be influencing their decision or people wanting to have conversations with you or get into your Tesla? What are you finding as far as you being a marketer for Tesla? I actually really enjoy it. I get a lot of people asking questions. I probably let a hundred people drive my car. Uh, really? Sometimes total strangers. I'm like, here, ch- check it out. Like, no, you're is, kidding me. I am not kidding you at all. Um, it's such an amazing experience to drive it. People say it's like driving a roller coaster. Um, yeah, How I so? One, I, don't, I wouldn't equate that with available. a good thing when you're in a car. <laughs> It's fun. It's just, it's exhilarating to drive it. I have the slowest Tesla that is made, and it takes people's breath away. So, what, what, how so? Is so it well. speed? Is it smooth? It's so smooth. It's so quiet. It's so quick. Uh, like it, if you put your foot down really quick, your head just goes right back into the headrest, and it corners because the all the weights in the battery, which is in the floor, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just it gives it such a low center of gravity. The the handling is incredible on it. It's just so there's it, no it, need to put a like bag of salt in your trunk in the bad weather. <laughs> well, I I did get stuck once uh, last winter in it. Uh, that's because I was going to pick up a guy after a really big snowfall, and he had just blown his whole driveway onto the road. So I okay. have a, it's pretty low. It's a Model Three. It's a pretty low car. Um, so I actually bottomed out on it and had to be pushed off of it. But I do have the Cybertruck on order, so uh, that won't be a problem when that comes in. Really? Okay, so you're you're fully invested. You're like, I'm not going back to a gas-powered car. I will car never, again. ever go back to a gas car, ever. I, I do a pretty long commute for work. Uh, I used to have a Dodge Dakota pickup truck. It cost me $42 a day in gas to go to Bowmanville from Georgetown and back. Uh, in the Tesla, it's $5.75 in electricity. There's wow. no comparison. Well, and Yeah, and that's affordable. When I bought it, I thought there was going to be some concessions I would have to make. I wanted to get an electric car because I was spending so much on gas. I thought there would be some concessions. I bought the cheapest Tesla there was. I thought, well, maybe it won't be good for road trips because it's low range. 
It has so far exceeded every expectation that I have had. It is the best thing I have ever driven in my life. I've driven Lamborghinis. I would take a Tesla over a Lamborghini. Really? So now, how do you plot out your your long trips then? Do you have to look for charging stations? Do you have to be well prepared then? No, there's different apps that you can use, but the Tesla actually has it built in. Like uh, me me and my son, we went on a road trip uh, just to test it out because I thought, you know what, it's probably not going to be great. We'll just go on a road trip to test it. So we went from Georgetown to Manhattan to Washington, D.C. to Pittsburgh and back up. And when you put in your navigation into the car, it actually says you're going to drive to here. You're going to charge for 10 minutes at this location. Then you're going to drive to this next charger. You're going to charge for 20 minutes. And then you're going to drive here and you'll be at your uh, location with 20% left. Uh, so it plots it all out for you and tells you where all the chargers are. So you definitely don't want to, you know, uh, take a wrong turn at Albuquerque. No, it's not really a problem either because, uh, I mean, it's not good for the long-term life of the battery to run it down really low. But I have mm-hmm. uh, a friend who took his down to minus 15 kilometers. Like there's there's a reserve in there. What about cottage country? Well, you can charge it off of pretty much anything. So uh, you, you could literally charge it off an extension cord. Obviously, it takes longer to charge it there. Uh, you end up getting, I think it's 100 kilometers uh, on an overnight charge with um, with just a, a regular 110-volt extension cord. So it's not as fast. But you don't have to fully charge your car. You only have to charge it enough to get to the next level charger. So there's 240-volt chargers that you can get. And then there's the superchargers from Tesla that are just crazy. And I can charge my car from zero to 80% in about 25 minutes. Okay. Confirm or deny you're working for Musk. No, 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 no. I will. (laughs) Oh, you know what? Keep it up. You might get a job Uh, as a spokesperson. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Cheers. We're going to go to Mark in St. Catharines if he's still there. Is Mark still there, Chris? All right, Mark, your thoughts. Nissan should give this guy a little respect. Yeah, I mean, uh, one side I feel like he should have done his research. Absolutely. Um, you know, I did that, and I decided not to go ahead with a, uh, uh electric vehicle. It just didn't make any sense to me when I looked at cost of, you know, replacing batteries down the road, cost of electricity, but most importantly, the initial purchase cost. The last mm-hmm. guy talking about buying a Tesla. First of all, the retail price on a Tesla is way more than your basic economy car. And he's basing his purchase on fuel mileage, comparing it to a V8 truck. That just seemed a little crazy. <laughs> There's a lot of more fuel-efficient vehicles you could have bought for way less money. You know, it doesn't. It just doesn't make any sense to me. The Tesla is, like he said, it's a Lamborghini of electric vehicles. But anything else, and even the Tesla, doesn't make sense. And you're paying all that money up front for a vehicle. You could buy three regular cars, or you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I couldn't justify the cost. And so I just bought a typical cheap economy car. All right. Well, I appreciate your uh, standing by. Um, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back um, with the skinny. It's Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. We got to get to the new COVID case numbers. But I got to tell you, uh, you know, I think that David really did make the point. Uh, if you're going to get into an EV, it really helps to hear, hear from people like that. The, you know, the, the people that already have adopted the technology and they're, they just become these de facto spokespersons. And I think definitely these companies owe them something. Hey, thanks for tuning into the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. We broadcast live three hours daily from Monday through Friday, nine till noon. Join us, will you? On 640 Toronto.